Good morning and welcome back to Public History in a Virtual Age. I'm Jean Gutierrez. I'm a curatorial scholar in women's history at the Center for Women's History at New York Historical Society. And speaking with us today is Dr. Deborah Hamer, director of the New Netherland Institute. She's responsible for initiatives aimed at identifying, preserving, digitizing, and translating Dutch language documents in repositories from around the world. She's a historian of the Dutch Atlantic world and received her PhD from Columbia University. Welcome, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jean. Okay, so let's just get right into it. Um, first of all, it's fascinating to me, like the way that people arrive at their different academic homes. So could you talk a little bit to us about how you got interested in the Dutch Atlantic um, and how you came to the New Netherlands Institute? So I decided I wanted to get a PhD in women's history. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in undergrad, uh, but I didn't exactly know what I was going to study. So uh, I came to Columbia and I was just really inspired by the idea of writing uh, history and a dissertation that would kind of focus on sources that were local to the area and kind of unique. Um, so that's kind of how I got interested in, in the Dutch. Uh, and Columbia is unique because there is a Dutch language program. Is so that, I came into the program knowing German, but I didn't know any Dutch oh, wow. when I started. Is that the only one in the city? That's the only one in the city. You wow. can learn Dutch at a few other locations in the U.S. I think Berkeley, Wisconsin, uh, I think University of Minnesota. There's a couple places you can. Um, okay. But uh, also maybe a good place to shout out Viney de Groot, my Dutch instructor at Columbia. She's still there, everyone. You can learn with her if you're inspired to learn mm -hmm. Dutch by this podcast. So I, so I learned Dutch and, you know, that uh, brought me to actually Albany, uh, New York, which is where the New Netherland Institute is located. Uh, so I, I spent uh, about five months in Albany just reading these Dutch West India Company documents. Uh, and I kind of met everyone uh, at the New Netherland Institute and particularly Charlie Gehring, uh, the kind of translator of most of these documents. I kept up that connection and uh, that's kind of how I ended up back at the New Netherland Institute after some, uh, I don't know, what would you say, peregrinations? Sure. <laughs> perambulations. Yes, perambulations, exactly. So for people who don't know, because, you know, it's one of the things about learning U.S. history is that it really does tend to privilege um, English history. Could you talk a little bit about the Dutch West India Company and its role in like the founding and the and the running and the creation of New Netherlands? Yeah, basically, uh, the Dutch rooted their claim to New Netherland, which was obviously uh, indigenous ground. It was and remains um, indigenous ground. Uh, in Henry Hudson's voyage in 1609, he was the first European to uh, sail up the Hudson River and it obviously bears his name now. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Dutch uh, West India Company didn't get chartered until 1621. So there's a brief period between 1609 and 1621 when there is something called the, uh, in Dutch they're called the four companies, the early companies. Four not as in the number four. Four mm -hmm. is in early uh, in Dutch. They sent different ships, you know, a few a year to trade with indigenous peoples for beaver pelts and, and other things, but mostly pelts. And then in 1621, the Dutch decided to charter a West India Company. It kind of didn't get really going until uh, 1623. It wasn't fully capitalized. 
it wasn't actually a super popular uh, venture compared to, let's say, the Dutch East India Company, which uh, was started in 1602 and was capitalized extremely fast. So uh, basically, it's not until 1623, 1624 that the West India Company gets around to sending some colonists out to New Netherland. So it's a group of families, um, mostly Walloons, actually. Mm-hmm. So they arrive and they settle down, and that's kind of considered the the start of the uh, colony of New Netherland. New Netherland. And the West India Company is an interesting has an interesting situation because you think of a corporation kind of as having uh, goals that are unified and that they're pursuing in a, an organized way. But the West India Company was actually made up of 19 different directors and then many, many other investors, some very minor investors who had literally no say in anything, you know, just invested a few guilders or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some, you know, major investors who did have some say in, in what was what was going on. So basically, they they kind of don't always agree about about what to do. So there's a lot of back and forth. And I would say the company kind of uh, progresses in one direction, then takes that back and progresses in a different direction. So there's all kinds of uh, debates. It's hardly a straight line forward into into colonization. But I think what's interesting about New Netherland and the Dutch West India in comparison maybe to some places that podcast listeners might be more familiar with, like Massachusetts or Virginia, mm-hmm. is uh, just that this is a place where trade is part of the blueprint of what's going to happen. It's not just about settlement. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that trade and settlement go together. They're not opposing, but there are two things that can make a society, you know, strong and uh, cohesive in the minds of the, of the people who started the colony. So there's less kind of, um, I would say that, you know, the Dutch are doing perhaps as much trade as some people in Massachusetts are doing, but there's less anxiety over <laughs> over that fact than in some places. And actually, the Dutch have quite a few links in this period to Virginia and to Massachusetts. So it's not, New Netherland isn't just out there by itself. It's fully integrated into this kind of English colonial landscape that you're more familiar with, perhaps. Okay. Having heard all that. Where are the women in this history? Like, are they, they're not just settlers? Are they also investors? Are they capitalists? You know, are there any women directors of the West India Company? There are not, to my knowledge, any women directors of the West India Company, though we don't have the full records of the company's uh, directors. It's actually a great tragedy that in the 19th century, much of the West India Company's archive in the Netherlands uh, was sold off as scrap paper. Um, yes yes so I don't think it's very likely that there were any women directors in the company but we do not have the full records but there were certainly women investors uh, Mm -hmm. in the company and it's certainly true the networks that women provided to wealthy men who would be likely to be directors in the West India Company were extremely significant so just because they're not there, names aren't there officially on any paper per se in terms of being directors doesn't mean that they weren't important behind the scenes. Yeah, I um, feel like those of us who do women's history are getting to be more and more adept at finding the women, even though they're not necessarily written into the documents. Yeah, I mean, there's a wonderful book by uh, the sociologist Julia Adams about Dutch. Uh, it's not about the West India Company specifically, but it touches on both the West India and East India companies mm-hmm. um, and kind of shows how family networks were the key to the operation of like the whole uh, merchant class. 
But we do find, to get to your other point, which was how do we find women in New Netherlands? So women are doing all kinds of things. So as I said, they're there, you know, from 1624 when the first colonists arrive. So we find uh, women as merchants. We find women as, you know, uh, keeping bars and hotels. We find women as uh, knowing indigenous languages and operating as uh, go-betweens with indigenous people. You know, women are there totally. And, you know, also we find women on the other side in the Netherlands kind of, uh, and this is the wonderful work of Susanna Shah Romney. We find uh, women kind of doing a lot of the work to kind of gather up the soldiers and sailors that the West India Company is going to use in their ventures. So this is kind of an unsavory business, to be honest, but it's Mm -hmm. basically women who gather up kind of poor immigrant men who kind of arrive in in Amsterdam or in other cities in the Netherlands looking for work. And they basically kind of advance them uh, some money. So they feed them and they give them a place to sleep and kind of give them some um, kind of a kit that you would need to go out on a voyage. Uh, And then in return the men sign over uh, parts of their the wages that they're anticipating getting to the women. And, you know, it's kind of uh, likely that the women are charging exorbitant prices, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, certainly an element of preying on uh, desperate people. Uh, oh. But this is certainly kind of key to getting the personnel that the West India Company needs to do its work, especially the kind of lower level Uh, personnel like soldiers who would have been sent out to New Netherlands and lived in the fort and, you know, kind of defended. I mean, the vision was to defend the colony against other Europeans or challengers or uh, indigenous people. Um, So women were, I would say, key to the operation of the West India Company uh, and ways that we're still learning about. And my own research in particular recently has been about the fact that soldiers often brought their wives with them to the colony. And this is kind of an extension of the way that war had operated in Europe, where there were always uh, what's called camp followers, you know, women who did the laundry and found food and cooked and stuff like that. So no army can operate without its women camp followers. And uh, I think that same principle was in effect uh, in New Netherland and in other Dutch possessions in the Atlantic world, uh, in particular Brazil. From my perspective, you can't say enough about how important women were actually to the West India Company's ventures, even if I think all oftentimes historians prefer not to acknowledge that. I think the documents themselves uh, often are giving full evidence of that. But uh, historians sometimes have been uh, less quick to pick up on that. Sure. I mean, it really does depend on expanding how you define these different kinds of work almost. Like people think of war work and they think of like the marching and the fighting and the this and that, but I feel like you're right. Um, that's not everything, all the work that you need to do to wage war. You know, you have to have your cooks and your foragers and the people who do the laundry. And, uh, you know, from what you're describing before, it almost sounded like, you know, the modern day equivalent would be like human traffickers bringing yeah. in the sort of low level people, the, the grunts. So it's really kind of fascinating how that works. That's really super fascinating, actually. Having talked about that, can we talk a little bit about like the foundation and the history of the New Netherlands Institute itself? The New Netherlands Institute owes its genesis to uh, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Gehring. Mm-hmm. He's a linguist by training. He was the one who kind of first got interested in these Dutch language documents that were in Albany. The New York State Archives had been uh, preserving them since, uh, well, Various organizations had been preserving them since the 17th century, but they had landed in the New York State Archives in Albany. 
they had been through a few translation efforts, but he was the first one to kind of systematically sit down and try to translate them all from, you know, start to finish. Mm -hmm. So this is a tremendous, tremendous project, many, many thousands of pages of uh, Dutch documents. And many of them were damaged in a fire in 1911 in Albany. So um, this is not easy work by any means. Often uh, the pages will be, you know, be missing a few inches on the top or on the sides. It's uh, you lack even sometimes the context (laughs) to move forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Charlie got interested in these these documents and he started to, you know, apply for grants and raise money to work on translating them. And the New Netherlands Institute kind of grew around that. So ultimately, he has translated, I'm trying to think how many volumes. Let's see, there's a few volumes of council minutes uh, left, and there's some correspondence volumes. So really, he's gone through a tremendous number of uh, pages of documents. And yeah, you can find the scans of all these documents of the original documents um, up on our website. Uh, and you can find his translations there, scans from the, the published book volumes uh, up on our website as well. So we certainly can't say enough about Charlie Gehring and his kind of initially one-man quest to get attention onto these uh, these documents. Super impressive. Oh, my goodness. So having mentioned the website, you have so many amazing digital exhibitions on offer. For those listeners who have not yet visited the New Netherlands Institute website, uh, it really is kind of amazing how much information they've got. But I was wondering, is there one that you're particularly proud of? Like, of all the exhibitions that you have on your website, which is the one that you would direct people to visit first? One of my personal favorites is the Slavery in New Netherland exhibit, Mm -hmm. which Andrea Mosterman uh, worked on. So it has just a tremendous amount of information. Something that I really like about it is that it draws attention to the documents and provide some um, kind of discussion questions mm-hmm. uh, about those, those documents and then also some discussion questions about some images uh, that also go along with that. Um, and she also really highlights the agency of enslaved people in New Netherlands. So mm-hmm. she focuses specifically on um, a guy by the name of Manuel de Gerard de Roos, kind of, uh, if you scroll down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he was meant to be executed at some point, but he survived and then thrived in New Netherland, ultimately. Uh, and he got half freedom, and he uh, that's a kind of a, a strange Dutch... Uh, category, legal category, in which enslaved people are partially free, but they still owe kind of dues to the West India Company. Hmm. So their freedom, it's not, well, it's not an indenture in the sense that, well, I don't know. I don't know if you'd call it an indenture really, but they're free to do whatever they want and they can have land, but they do have to come back, you know, every year with, you know, a certain amount of uh, weed or uh, kind of provisions, uh, mostly, is okay. the requirement. So, like, to feed the rest of the colony. It is still somewhat onerous in the sense that it's it's not a nominal amount of uh, farm production that they have to do. Mm-hmm. And there is that threat, obviously, that uh, if they don't produce enough provisions, that that freedom can be taken away from them. Okay. Um, but I wouldn't say indenture in the sense that these people do own land. So, so that's the whole point. It's a very complicated legal category that doesn't exactly isn't reproduced necessarily in in other places. Yeah, 
So, sorry, I don't... So, I like what I like about the exhibition <laughs> is that even though we don't have uh, as many documents as we wish we had about enslaved people, she really is able to do a lot with the few that we have in terms of trying to get kind of the rich life of these enslaved people into the record mm-hmm. and their own, you know, self-emancipatory efforts. Sure. I mean, one of the things that's so great about these digital exhibitions is it does allow you to bring in not only sort of local documents, but images and documents and, you know, information from all over the world, because you really are talking about like a Dutch Atlantic. And so I remember looking at the exhibition a little bit earlier and seeing this sort of amazing um, cross that had been made by a, a, a king in Africa, I want to say, um, who converted to Christianity. And, oh, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of amazing that you can have that image, you know, whereas if it was a physical exhibition in a gallery, you would need, you know, a courier to go and bring it back to the institution that you would need climate control. I'm sure you couldn't get permission. Yeah, I'm sure you couldn't get permission to get that out. And you probably wouldn't even be able to get it in the first place. And even if you could, it would probably cost $25,000 just to bring over that one object. And yeah, it's, I think one of the beauties of a digital exhibition is that you can have all of these images and, and objects and you know information that you wouldn't necessarily be able to assemble physically in a gallery. We're having a and little I mean, bit that's of that so... problem now. Oh yeah, what's the what's going on with you guys? It's long story short, you know, as you know, marking the four hundredth anniversary of the Dutch arrival is happening now ish. There's several different dates being tossed around and some of them appear to be a little bit contentious, but Yes, we prefer to call it the 2024 to 2026, the season. We call it the season of commemoration. Yes, (laughs) that's a good way to put it. So talking about bringing over some documents from Dutch archives, but also the Dutch archives are also marking this 400th anniversary. And they're like, no, we need those. And, you know, (laughs) there's all these different institutions around the city and around the state that are you know, all sort of looking for the same stuff. And it's just, it's a bit complicated sometimes when you're trying to mark such a momentous occasion over so many years. And I've said a couple times on this podcast that public history a lot of times ebbs and flows and lives and dies with the calendar. You know, we're in the middle of Pride Month as we're talking and everyone is just falling over themselves to run around and attend as many of the millions of Pride Month offerings that are going on, you know, it can get a little overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we are hoping that spreading it out over like a two to three year period will make it a little bit less overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, I guess I would say also that something that's for me very fascinating about about this 400th anniversary is that in uh, 2009, they did commemorate the 400th anniversary of Henry Hudson's arrival sure. uh, in New Netherlands. That was quite a quite a big moment. And I think the king and queen came over from the Netherlands. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was uh, quite big, but it was also quite celebratory. Uh, and I think this moment is going to be a little bit different in terms of what uh, institutions are offering as kind of a, looking at this 400th anniversary. So, for example... Uh, we at the New Netherland Institute are going to have a conference on uh, the history of slavery and the slave trade in New Netherland and mm-hmm. the Dutch Atlantic world as our like marquee 400th anniversary uh, event. Yeah. 
And I know you guys, um, I believe, are having some reflections on uh, Dutch colonialism. Absolutely. Um, from, uh, I believe, Beatrice Glow. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, this is uh, just going to be a, a study in, um, in contrast yeah. from, from the last 400th um, yeah. uh, anniversary. So I'm, I'm eager to see how the public responds Definitely. Uh, to these different activities. Yeah. And it'll just show, you know, the evolution of the field and the, the movement of scholarship away from celebrating towards, you know, really grappling with the complications and the just the bad things that came along with the arrival of European colonists. You know, sort of to that end, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your exhibition on the interactions between the Dutch and the indigenous. So something that's really interesting about working on New Netherland is it really has to be multidisciplinary. So this exhibit was curated by William Starnow, who's uh, actually an anthropologist rather than a historian. And he's been a really important figure in bridging the kind of Charlie's interest in translations with kind of more, you know, on the ground, indigenous people's own, uh, you know, memories and what we can learn from physical evidence on the ground. So I think that's something that we kind of at the New Netherlands Institute are continuing to pay attention to. So having strong relationships with archaeologists. And I mean, we don't currently right now have a particularly strong connection with people in um, kind of Native American and Indigenous studies. But I hope that that's something that we will be building up in the coming years, because we can't tell the story of New Netherland without centering Indigenous people. You know, the Dutch came specifically because they wanted to trade with indigenous peoples. And we shouldn't romanticize that to say, oh, trade had some kind of, uh, you know, made good partnerships or, you know, made people get along well, which is kind of an older narrative that was prevalent in this field. And that that narrative should certainly be questioned and uh, revised. But it is certainly true that the Dutch did come to trade with indigenous peoples and that they were, especially around Albany, uh, the area that we now call Albany, but that the Dutch called uh, Beverwijk or Fort Orange. They did have a lot of mutual interactions and indigenous people were coming, particularly Haudenosaunee in that area, into the city and were often violently coerced uh, in some ways into trading with specific Albany traders, uh, Albany Dutch uh, traders. So it's just important that we look at that from the perspective of indigenous people themselves and see, you know, what they remember about that period, what they can offer that changes the way that we've been uh, recounting that narrative, which is based on mostly document Dutch documents. Sure. To that end, it'd be great if we could talk about Alita Livingston and the conference that you did at this point, still fairly recent, um, at New York Historical Society on Alita Livingston's world. And she is, if I remember correctly, this elite Dutch woman who wielded quite a lot of political and social and economic influence in New Netherlands and had a lot of interactions with enslaved women and with indigenous women. And so, you know, we're talking about a woman who left a lot of documents versus women who didn't really have any opportunity to leave behind written records. And so I guess that's sort of what we've been talking about is, you know, how do you find your way around these gaps in the archive and how do you 
almost summon these women um, when they don't have a written record left behind where you can access their own words. So just to give a little background on Alida, so she was born in uh, 1656 in New Netherland. So when New Netherland was still under Dutch rule, uh, and then in 1664, the English came and took over uh, the colony of New Netherland. But she uh, lived until about 1727. So uh, she very much bridged this transition between Dutch and English rule. She married a guy named Robert Livingston. It's actually uh, was considered somewhat scandalous at the time because Robert Livingston was the secretary of her husband who passed away and they married uh, shortly after uh, his death. So she was a widow at the time that she married Robert. Um, and he actually had Scottish origins, but he had learned, he had lived in the Netherlands for some time and he was uh, fluent in Dutch uh, language and in writing. So basically they correspond with the, with one another in Dutch Um there's kind of bursts, periods of bursts of correspondence between them. Most often when he's away in New York City doing business, you know, trying to advance the family's interests. And then they correspond with each other and she remains behind on their kind of family uh, estate. And she's managing while he's in New York City. And Livingston is quite prominent in uh, in indigenous uh, diplomacy in the area. So and then the Livingston family, of course, as kind of typical wealthy people of the era do uh, enslave people. And sometimes Alita and Robert are corresponding about what is going on with their enslaved people, what work they're up to, and whether she feels like they are doing the tasks that they're assigned, you know, properly to her, to her liking, etc. So there certainly is a lot going on in this correspondence that has to do with both indigenous and enslaved people. And in particular, she has some interactions with a very interesting woman named Hilichef and Alinda. She's a mixed race woman. She's the daughter of a, a Mohawk woman and a Dutch man. You can find more of her story in a, a journal written by two Labidus, uh, Jasper. It's called the Journal of Jasper, Jasper Dankerts. So basically, he encountered her in about 1679, 1680. And Hilicha was kind of torn between um, her Mohawk world and her her Dutch world. And basically, ultimately, at least according to the way Dankarts explains it, uh, quite forcefully shows the, the Dutch side. But she's still... Um, the account he leaves does leave us wondering because she uh, was still quite in touch with her Mohawk relatives and uh, was a diplomat. Hilcha was a diplomat in her own right. But she and Alida also uh, kind of occasionally run into each other. And Alida likes to report about uh, Hilicha to, to Robert when he is away. There's a lot you could do in these, in these sources with Alida and her world of women and flipping it around and trying to read what she wrote from the perspective of these people that she's uh, often negatively reporting on, uh, frankly. So uh, we actually, we have a translation project with these going on. So these documents, they are in Dutch. They're owned by the Gilder Lehrman Institute. And I actually believe that the way you access them is at the New York Historical Society, because you guys have a partnership, I think, or some, of some sort with uh, Gilder Lehrman. So, so that for anyone who wants to see the original documents, they're there. They're also, they've also been digitized. And unfortunately, they're not on our website and they are behind a paywall through the Gilder Lehrman's, um, I think, American History 1493 database. So if you, if your institution, if you have an institution and it subscribes, you can, can look at these documents. Uh, they are in Dutch. 
but we do have a translator named Jos van der Linde busily working on, on them uh, with the support of the Society of the Daughters of Holland Dames. They very generously are supporting this translation project. At some point in the next, I'm hoping, three years, everyone listening to this podcast will hopefully be able to read them uh, in English for themselves if they so desire. But I mean, you know, I'm saying it a little bit jokingly, but um, it really is important to forward, you know, we've done a lot of translation projects that involve West India Company papers specifically, but it is really important to broaden uh, what we consider translatable material beyond official documents of the West India Company to other types of documents. And this translation project of Alita and Robert's letters is kind of the first step in that direction saying, how can we translate other things and make other things available that aren't official documentation. And the official documentation certainly, you know, I've used it uh, to a great extent in my career to reveal women. So there's not like, that's not useful for understanding women's history. But at the same time, this is kind of a new path of translating documents that aren't official West India Company correspondence, which is, you know, a, a very particular, very particular things are going to be reported there that are different from what's going to be in a you know, private family correspondence. Uh, so it's essential, like when we pick projects to focus on, it's essential, I think, uh, moving forward in this like public history age to choose projects that may be a little bit more challenging technically in some ways. Uh, handwriting is certainly worse uh, in the Alita and Robert correspondence, um, particularly on Alita's side. And it's uh, much more colloquial and sometimes it is hard. Even if you understand every word on the page, you still don't necessarily understand what she's actually saying sometimes. But it is important to pick projects that are going to reveal women in a different light. Well, I think that also raises just so many interesting questions. Like we talk a lot about historical content, but there's also the question of access. Like, you know, from beginning to end, we've heard about documents that were burned, documents that were sold, you know, documents sitting in institutions that are not necessarily that widely open to the public. You know, there's so many places, so many archives where you have to have some kind of institutional affiliation to get a research appointment. Um, you know, and then even when things are digitized, like that costs money. And sometimes things are behind a paywall and you need an institutional affiliation to get behind the paywall. So it's just you know, I think people often, when they think about digital history, they're like, oh, it's going to make everything so, so easy to access. And it's, in some ways, that can be true. But in other ways, I think there's, there's a lot of steps that people don't necessarily think of when they think about getting access to this kind of documentation. Um, and I think you've made a really great point that, like, there's a reason why women's history and indigenous history and the history of enslaved women is so much less easier to find. It's because those documents, in addition to being, you know, sort of hidden within archives, like they're not necessarily the first things that people go to when they're like, okay, I have only this much money to digitize things. Like, what am I going to digitize? You know, and there's still this sort of hierarchy that's like, well, a woman's letters to her husband, eh, less important than like the official letters of this governing body or something like that so it's a really it's amazing you know the the issues that you've raised like with one story about one woman's correspondence so thank you yeah I mean it's so true everywhere because even within Albany in the New York State Library and Archives it's like there's a total divide between there's plenty more documents in the New York State Library that are Dutch 
but because the archive in the way it works is that New York State Archive is only for government documents and the because the West India Company is construed as like a precursor to the government of New York the Dutch West India Company papers are in the New York State Archives but then there's other documents that are in the New York State Library which is in the same building so it's a little bit confusing but they are treated as separate and distinct from the Dutch West India Company documents. So there's plenty of uh, Dutch documents in the New York State Library that have not received the same attention. Uh, in particular, uh, I, I would point to the von Rensselaer Manor papers, which again are likely to show us a lot of things about enslaved people and indigenous people and women. There's even an account book by Maria von Rensselaer uh, in there that has not been digitized or translated yet. So I think you're totally right that we've long prioritized the government documents. And that priority goes back hundreds of years because the von Rensselaer Manor papers are in significantly worse preservation condition than the Dutch West India Company papers. Uh, Just this one example. And that's what makes it hard to get started on a project because you have to go from start, you know, preservation. You can't digitize anything until it's well preserved enough to be put under a machine for (laughs) digitization. So, yes, it's this whole complicated thing. So. But I think that when those Rensselaer Manor papers are uh, are digitized and out there, we're also going to have such a better look at all these topics, women and enslaved people and indigenous people. That's fantastic. So one other thing that I was going to ask about specifically your digital exhibitions is, you know, we talked a little bit about who curates which exhibitions, but like, how is it done? Like, how do you find curators? How do they go about putting the exhibitions together. And then the other thing I'm curious about is like, what kind of feedback do you get? Like, do you hear from students? Do you hear from teachers? Do you hear from researchers? Just a little bit how the sausage gets made, I guess. is Everyone's always interested. So um, usually with these digital exhibitions, we approach someone who we think has like an expertise that we want to make available to a broader public. Uh, you know, not everyone says yes, because obviously everyone is, is very busy and it is a particular kind of writing and work. So usually they assemble, let's say, the text and the images that they want to use. And then uh, we look that over and then we are the ones who put that up online. So basically the person, uh, the curator of these exhibitions doesn't necessarily have to have any digital facility or skill beyond what they already know, which I think is important to emphasize because it does mean that I don't want to say anyone can do it, but if anyone who's listening is interested in curating a digital exhibition, you can certainly be be in touch with us. We are always interested in more uh, more digital exhibitions. So I will say that we don't have that much information about the reactions to these digital exhibitions. We know that sometimes they are used in schools. Uh, for those of you who grew up in New York State, at least, who are listening, you probably remember that you had some required New Netherlands uh, time you had to spend on New Netherland. So basically, you mostly hear from people in New York State about these digital exhibitions. And it does, as far as I can see, it does, they do stimulate interest. You know, people sometimes want to interview me for their classes or things like that. So I think they are um, working. What I would say is that I wish we got more feedback from people outside of New York State. But I'm not sure that I think a big push to look at these digital exhibitions comes from teachers saying to their students in New York State, oh, this is a resource you could use for our New Netherland uh, studies. But I wish that we would get people from other parts of the states and other parts of the world uh, more engaged in that. So that's something that I'm thinking about for the future, certainly. Very cool. 
Well, I am super glad to hear all about the digital exhibitions and your work and the work of the New Netherlands Institute. We have a few minutes left. Is there anything else you wanted to let listeners know or anything else that you wanted to cover? Oh, actually, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I hope it doesn't take up too much time, but it might, which is this question of legal status for women in the Dutch Atlantic world and in the Netherlands. You know, we touched on it lately a couple of times, you know, this question of being married versus being widowed or single, being enslaved versus being sort of enslaved, like we were talking about with slavery in New Netherlands exhibition. And so I'm I'm really curious if they could like just sort of give a quick overview of like what was women's legal status in New Netherlands? Like was it different to what came later when the British took over? Like how did it all work? Traditionally, the narrative has been that Dutch women had a lot more freedom, particularly when they were married. So the the idea has been that while the English had coverture, meaning that a woman was like subsumed under the legal personality of her husband, the English had that and the Dutch didn't really have that. So Dutch women were much more free. It's been portrayed kind of as a tragedy for for Dutch women that the English took over and that the English system, you know, not immediately by any means, but kind of ultimately, let's say, by 50 or 100 years later had kind of prevailed. I think it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that, because the Dutch certainly had uh, an idea that women were supposed to be, I don't want to say subservient, but were supposed to be, you know, obedient to their husbands. And the English on the other hand, also had many women who were kind of independent traders and merchants of their own right. So like that coverture story has been questioned from like the side of the English historians, whether coverture really was so all encompassing as people have portrayed it. And then from the Dutch side, there's a different question, which is like, were women really that free? There still was certainly a prevailing ideology of it being better if women kind of remained inside. There's kind of a famous image that I always show when I do talks of it's from a kind of conduct book, a 17th century conduct book in Dutch by the physician Johan van Beverwijk. Uh, and it's an image of a woman standing on a turtle. And so, yes, so the idea of this image is that a woman is supposed to be like a turtle, like she's supposed to stay inside her shell, which is the home, and not venture outside. The point is that uh, the contrast between the Dutch and the English is perhaps been overdrawn and that maybe the system is more systems are more similar and often the situation is really more what the community approves of uh, is what passes for acceptable rather than some kind of overarching uh, rules and often um, that is also class-based. Deborah Thank you so much for speaking with us again. Um, it's been a real pleasure. It's been super informative. Um, I am really looking forward to the new scholarship that comes out of the New Netherlands Institute as this 400th anniversary bundle of years moves forward. <laughs> and yeah, just thank you again. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope all the listeners will go to your website and partake in all of the riches that you have there. So thank you again. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Jean, for having me. I really appreciate it.